This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. I spent four or five years in Toastmasters learning how to speak professionally. It was a transformational experience for me, and I'd always had the confidence to stand up and speak, having spent most of my young adult life fronting a rock and roll band and playing in bars before I was even old enough to be in those bars. But a couple of years ago, after I was already speaking professionally, Michael Port, a speaker who I was familiar with but didn't really know, launched a program in what I will call here his life's work. This program is called Heroic Public Speaking, and one of the first videos Michael sent out to promote the program was a list of 50 common mistakes that speakers make. And I took a look at the video and I downloaded the PDF that came with it. And then I saw the first rule, don't point at people. Guilty as charged. Instead, you're supposed to gesture with your hand. Who knew this? I didn't know this. I'd never even heard such a thing before. When someone introduces you, start speaking immediately. The audience is already looking at you and the show has already begun. So the last speech that I gave before watching Michael and his wife Amy Port's first video required me to walk about 30 yards to the center of a massive stage. And I did so in this awkward, awful, uncomfortable silence. And it wasn't only awful for me having to walk all that distance in silence. It was awful for the audience. It was terrible. I didn't know that no matter where you are, you start speaking, but I learned that. And I thought, this is what's on the free videos. What in God's name is in the program? This is great content. So if you've never seen Michael speak, you've never seen a preternatural speaker who can give you an experience like none you have ever seen. I promise you that. It's amazing to watch Michael speak. And if you want to be a great speaker, you're going to want to work with Michael and Amy Port. And you have an opportunity to do that now at Heroic Public Speaking. You're going to learn how to perform and you're going to be transformed. You're also going to massively upgrade your content and you're going to learn the business of speaking. There is no better speaking program anywhere on earth, and there are no two better teachers. So go now to heroicpublicspeaking.com forward slash live and sign up for the October 31st Heroic Public Speaking in Fort Lauderdale. You're going to meet amazing people. You're going to have an amazing experience. You're going to be transformed, and you're going to be the best speaker that you can possibly be, and Michael and Amy will make sure of that. Don't miss it. If you are in sales and if you are in business and if you are a leader, then you are a storyteller. Whether you want to be a storyteller or not, you are a storyteller because that's how human beings communicate with each other. My good friend, Mike Weinberg, the author of Sales Management Simplified and New Sales Simplified, introduced me to Paul Smith. Paul is a speaker and a trainer on storytelling techniques with a new book out called Sell with a Story, How to Capture Attention, Build Trust, and Close the Sale. And those are all really important things. And Paul's framework is impeccable. 
including 25 sales stories that every salesperson should have. Many of them I was unfamiliar with. And it's interesting because one of the things that we talk about is that most salespeople have four or five stories that we tend to lean on. But when you think about expanding that repertoire, it's really, really important and really, really useful. I like books with actionable insights. I want to be able to read the book and do something. And this is that kind of book. After reading it, I invited Paul Smith to join us here in the arena. Hey, Paul, how are you? Hey, very good. Very good. Nice to talk to you. You too. And we share a mutual friend in Mike Weinberg, which I think says something about your judgment. <laughs> it probably does. But if the way the, the banter in this group seems to work, that's a pejorative instead of a compliment, right? <laughs> it's a compliment for sure. Okay, He's very good. He's a good friend. We're speaking together in a few weeks and uh, we do some work together. He's a really good guy. He is. We we actually both got our starts in the authoring world at the same time with the same publisher, which is how we came across each other. Well, you'll have to know then that since I wrote the foreword to his first book, whenever he puts it on the screen and we're in the same room, I get to remind people that the very best part of his book was the foreword. Exactly. <laughs> and now he's written the foreword to my book, so he's going to be able to pay me back in spades every time we perform together and say, and I wrote the best part of Anthony's book. And it looks like he wrote the best part of your book too, huh? He, he did. So yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all coming full circle here. That's how it works. Whoever wrote the foreword, that's the real selling point of this. Right. Book. right. The book is called Sell With Story, How to Capture Attention, Build Trust, and Close the Sale. And I want to just go backwards before we go forwards. This sure. is your third book in a series. Just briefly mention the other two and tell us how you stepped onto this path of studying and writing about and teaching, coaching, consulting around story. Yeah. Well, so I'll mention those. And I I wish I could say it was as intentional as it probably looks in hindsight like it was. But the first book was Lead with a Story. So it's about using storytelling as a leadership tool. The second one is Parenting with a Story, which is using storytelling as a, a parenting tool specifically to teach your kids character and life lessons and values and things like that. And then, of course, this third one here, Sell with a Story for, for Salespeople. So the underlying theme behind it is obviously storytelling. So I, I would consider myself more of a storytelling expert than I would try and present myself as a leadership, parenting, or sales expert. That happens to be the area in which I'm trying to apply my area of expertise, which is storytelling. And and I kind of started into that area r- rather late. I was probably 15 or so years or into my career, mostly at, at Procter & Gamble, before it really dawned on me that storytelling was a, a serious tool that I needed to, or, or a skill that I needed to be good at if I wanted to be successful in my career. And and it's just not the kind of thing that you learn in, in college or even in business school. Or, you know, when I joined the P&G, it's not like there was a class on storytelling for for the new hires or anything. So I ended up kind of figuring out later on in my career that that was an important skill and tried to learn it myself and, and was kind of frustrated that I was having difficulty figuring out how do I learn this kind of esoteric skill set that seems to be very important in the business world, but yet that nobody seems to know how to do and there's not any uh, go-to places to go to learn it. And I, I ended up interviewing CEOs and executives and leaders at, at companies all over the world, 20, 
25 different countries around the world, almost 100 different companies at the time. I'm over 300 now trying to learn, you know, how are they doing this skill? And I ended up kind of reverse engineering my way into what makes for a great story. And that first book is the thing that started it out. But, you know, the the second book kind of came out of the first book. And then by the time I got to the the third one, it, it really wasn't even my idea anymore. I have to admit my, uh, my publisher came to me and said, well, we think this ought to be the next book in this in this series that has just seemed to emerge out of out of the first book. It's always interesting how you end up on a path that was not of your making. I mean, you right. you just kind of get hooked onto something and then you just follow the trail and then pretty soon you find out you're down the road. Right. I want to ask you a bunch of questions about storytelling, particularly how it relates to sales. You start the book with six factors that make something a story. And I think that's really interesting that you started there with what is a story made up of and its component Mm -hmm. parts. And it's time, place, a main character, obstacle, goals, and events. And I want to specifically talk about obstacles because in sales, that's the part that gets left out of so many stories. Mm. I want to ask if you have some thoughts on why salespeople leave out the challenges between the current state and the future desired state. And how does it impact your ability to tell a story when you leave out the part about obstacles? Yeah, so that's a, a great set of questions. And I think if I start with the first one about why people maybe leave out the obstacle, and I think that is true a lot of times. My guess is that people, especially in sales, want their stories to be all good. You know, this everything is great. You know, this is wonderful. My product is wonderful. Your company is wonderful. We're more wonderful together. <laughs> you know, everything's positive. And, and a story has to have a bad guy. You've got to have a villain. And that is the, the obstacle or the challenge in the, the story. And in fact, that is often referred to as the catalyst or the, the monkey wrench that gets thrown into a normal series of events that turns the whole direction of the story to make it an interesting story. And a lot of times that's going to be the way you use that then in a sales story ought to be what I call a problem story. It's a story that illustrates the quintessential problem that your product or service is designed to solve. And without that, there's really no need for the product or service that you provide. So I I think having that villain is even more important probably in a sales story than it is even in a normal story. In a normal story, it's very important already. I think that uh, one of the other reasons is that they're afraid of their mistakes and they're afraid to Mm. talk about struggling to figure out how to actually generate the results that they sell. I mean, I, I think a lot of it is we're really good at this. You should hire us. We can get you this outcome. And it's almost, I think, better to just say, let me tell you how we learned this. We made every mistake that you can make trying to figure this out. And then the story has sort of a better arc, I think, of, you know, we we tried to do the same thing you're trying to do, but it was really hard to do. And here's all the things that we've learned. Um, Right. Rather than we just have this very, very, you know, boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, boy marries girl, they live happily ever after. Right. That's not how the story goes. There's a whole bunch of bad things that happen in between there and the boy has to win back girl and so on. I actually have a name for that kind of a story and it's called an I'll tell you when I made a mistake story. And it's one of the 25 or so types of stories I think all salespeople really need to be able to tell because I think you're exactly right. But what what the person on the receiving end of the sales call, so the buyer, what they really want to know that if and when you make a mistake, I'll hear about it and and you're going to fix it. Or when you don't have the right product for me, 
you're going to tell me, I, you know, in this case, I can't help you. I'm not your best solution in cases one, seven, and nine. But in, you know, case two, four, and six, I am the best solution on the market and you really should be buying from me. But if, if you say, hey, look, I'm the best thing out there and we're the best, we can solve all your problems and we're, we're A to Z, and that's just not believable. That tells me you're trying to sell me something as opposed to you have the solution that I really need. We spend a lot of time in sales telling stories about what we've done. And we tell a lot of success stories and we think that's mm -hmm. what the client wants to hear. Tell me your opinion on the opposite side of that. What do you get for being vulnerable as a storyteller? What kind of difference does it make in what you do and the response you receive? Yeah. The first thing you get is believability. Nobody's going to lie to you about the mistakes that they've made, <laughs> right? The vulnerability that you're showing at that moment, the immediate payoff for that is people will believe what you're saying. They'll, you're an honest person because you're willing to share with me even your embarrassing moments and the places where you made a mistake. And so when you, like I said, when you do then tell me something that you're really good at, I'm more likely to believe you because you told me when you're not that good and you've the mistakes that you've made in the past. It's also, I think, just a relationship building thing. It, the, the, that trust breeds trust in return. And that trust is the foundation of any relationship. So it's a relationship building mechanism to tell somebody a failure story, your own failure story. So I think you get both of those benefits right away. In my experience, it's almost if you can be vulnerable, you open the door to allowing your client or the person you're talking to, to be vulnerable as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. If, if I don't have to be perfect, you don't have to be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it does give you some license to be human, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think that people mostly want to work with people who are human. And yeah. you know, I think that that maybe helps generate trust. Yeah. You talk about that in the book. So I'm pointing some of these things out that are in the book that I hope we can get people to go read because it will really help them craft much, much more effective stories. I want to go sort of just fundamental human behavior. This is who we are and it's what we do. Why do you think that we trade stories? And when you're around people, whether it's in a sales situation or a leadership situation, I tell a story and then you tell a story and then I tell another story. Why do we exchange in stories this way? Yeah, the answer to that probably is hidden deep within human evolutionary psychology. <laughs> you know, that it's probably more sophisticated than I'm equipped to share and and that maybe even your audience is interested in hearing, but it's certainly we've been we've been sharing stories with each other as a species since the dawn of mankind, since we've been scribbling pictures on cave walls, right? So it is just a, an inherent natural part of being human to share stories. And, and the result of that shows up in studies all the time. I recall one of the studies I mentioned in the, in the book talks about trust. What percentage of people do you trust? And when you just ask that question point blank to most people, the, the answer is around 30% of people. So let's say about a third of the other human beings on this planet are trustworthy <laughs> and two thirds of us are not. But then when you ask the question, well, what percent of the people that you know personally are trustworthy? The answer shoots up to 70 or 80%. And you don't have to be a math genius to figure out that, that there's something wrong with that. On average, those numbers should be the same, right? Unless it's the case that the people that don't know anybody are less trustworthy or something like that, but that's not normally going to be the case. So all that means is, is that human beings naturally default to not trusting other people that, that they don't know, but they naturally default to trusting people 
that they do know. Like, I, you know, uh, you and I just met each other. I, you know, we don't know each other very well. So we might default to not trusting each other. But after we get to know each other, it would be, well, I, yeah, I trust him until he gives me a reason not to. As opposed to, I don't trust him until he gives me a reason to trust him, right? So then those stories that we exchange is the fastest way to move from the 30% to the 70% because now you feel like you know somebody because you know some personal history on them. You, you, you've traded stories as opposed to trading resumes. Like if you and I traded resumes, it wouldn't do anything to build our trust. But if we spent 10 minutes telling stories about our families and our childhood and things like that, and then we would feel like we knew each other better. And, and because we would, we would know each other, you know, in a personal way, not just I've read your resume or your Vita or something, right? I think that that's right. I think it is something that's just internal to human beings in the way that we've evolved. It's an evolutionary psychology kind of question to begin with. I do think that there's something to that. If you trade stories, I get an understanding of who you are, and it does allow that mm -hmm. trust to happen a lot faster. But that's not what we do in sales. In sales, we do a lot of things except tell the kinds of stories where we could get the results we want. And I want to ask you for just a minute. I've got a couple more questions sure. for you, but I want to talk about the presentation and proposal stage. And I've presented in boardrooms countless times, mm -hmm. and we're always prepared with a deck. I've got logos of every client we've worked with. I've got references. I've got quotes from other people. I've got facts. I've got figures. I've got process maps. I've got all of these things. And then no matter what happens, the first thing that happens is somebody will raise their hand to ask a question. And then the question will go something like, listen, I want to know what you're going to do when this happens. And they're not asking for the facts or figures or the things that we sort of think as proof providers. Mm -hmm. Give you the hypothetical because they want to hear you tell the story of how do you think about this and what do you do when things come off, the, when the train comes off the track and right. things go wrong. Why do we tend to believe that facts and figures and concrete, scientific, proven you know, things are going to do better for us than stories? I'm not even sure that's an entirely true that we think that facts are more believable than stories because I, I I don't distinguish that there are stories and then there are facts. And those are two different things. Then there's no overlapping area. I, I, I mean, the kind of storytelling that I traffic in are the kind of stories that will, that will be littered with facts. I mean, there'll be facts all over it. So a, a story to me is a collection of facts arranged in a, a time and place you know, these things happened at this time and then this happened and then this happened and the result was this. And there, there are facts and dates and, and dollar amounts and numbers strewn throughout that, but they're just arranged in something that we call a story as opposed to just given to people in a list. And so I, I, I feel like they're, they're both very important and I don't think you can do business without facts and figures. And I don't think you can really do business well without stories. So I, I don't want to distinguish the two. Let, let me reframe that and try to distinguish yeah. it for you. If the marketing department and the people in creative hand you a deck, that deck doesn't have stories in it. Right. That it's got facts and data. Graphs and data and things that we think are going to be proof providers. Why do you think they miss the story? I mean, there's a reason you wrote this book is yeah. because there's a gap in the market. And you wrote this because you said people really need to change how they think about this stuff. Maybe you haven't thought about this. I see the reliance on facts and figures way outweighing stories. But then my experience tells me when I step into a boardroom, I'm going to be asked to tell stories. Yeah. I'm probably as a salesperson, woefully ill-equipped 
and ill-prepared to tell those stories. Yeah, thank you. I think I understand the question better. I think that storytelling in business organizational settings has always been there. But I think in the last, I don't know, 50 or 60 years ago, it probably started waning. Like Our grandparents probably told stories around the office just as much as they were trafficking in data and facts and logic and arguments. But I think the advent of things like business schools, professional, you know, graduate studies in business that were cranking out highly analytical MBAs that are trained to look at a business like an engineer looks at a machine. Telling stories around the office would have identified you as old school and not part of the new avant-garde part of, of leadership and management that's that's very analytical. And plus, you know, technology and email, and it just made it so easy for people to communicate in data and numbers and spreadsheets and all this kind of stuff. So I think we we moved away from a storytelling-based narratives around our work and into more data-based and analytical things. And I think there's a lot, there are a lot of benefits to that. I think it's only been in the last decade or so that we're realizing that we've probably swung the pendulum too far and we've lost our, not only our interest in, uh, but our abilities in telling stories. And when it happens on occasion around the office, people like gravitate to, oh my gosh, that, you know, that was a really compelling story and I hadn't thought about it that way. And, and we find ourselves going and telling, uh, repeating that story to other people. So we're, I think we're in the, the midst of a bit of a rediscovery of the power of story as opposed to an original discovery of it. I think it's taken a, a hiatus for a few decades when it was probably the norm forever. Do you think that the toolkit that we have now lends itself to being a better storyteller? I'm thinking about video and audio and and mm. the web and the ability to deliver stories over long distances, things like that. Yeah, clearly. I, I think those kind of things definitely are making it easier because we have more vehicles now to tell stories. It, you know, it used to be the only two vehicles that we had to tell a story or three, I guess, was in person over the phone. And then we had television slash radio. Right. But now we've got, you know, all kinds of mediums of audio and video and podcasts and web based and, you know, video conferences and all, all that kind of stuff. And even social media type constructs, even a short attention span device like Twitter, it's possible to tell stories in 140 characters. It's difficult, but it can be done. And it's also extended our ability on the other end of the spectrum. Now you can have, you know, dozens and dozens of pages of text of a compelling story that's all resides online that you direct your audiences to that they can go read. Whereas, you know, before, other than in-person and telephone, the only vehicles we had lasted between 30 and 60 seconds, and that was it. And it was a radio ad or a television ad. And that, that it never got shorter than 30, and it never got longer than 60. Now we have very short ones, and we have very, very long ones. And so I think it's given us more options to tell stories. And you look at what Apple does with stories. I'm going to try to lead you into a couple other questions. But yeah. you look at Johnny Ives, who yeah. will tell you exactly all the design decisions that they made around the new iPhone with mm-hmm. the video going on and he's telling this great story about how magical it was that they had to, it's always the same story. They had to scrap everything that they knew and start over, you know, and they, he's got all the drama around what's going to happen. And you've got a couple really interesting sections in the book that really grabbed my attention because I was unaware of what some of your research and some of your experience has shown you and that it's a story can actually increase the value of what's being sold. Mm-hmm. I can give you a couple to choose from, or you can tell both of these stories and share this information. But the very beginning of the book, you bought a picture of a pig, which is yeah. just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Because there's no reason that you need a picture of a pig 
<laughs> even though it sounds cool, but the story yeah. is so good. And then the story about eBay and what happened with relatively, I mean, meaningless, trivial mm -hmm. things that were sold with a story. Yeah. I find this so fascinating and I believe it. And I believe it is something that people, I think it's part of what Johnny I is doing is telling you that this phone is bigger than the phone. It's something else. Can you just share your, yeah. your research and your thoughts around this? Because I think it's just, it's really, really, it's something worth spending time thinking about. Yeah. Well, so I'll talk with the research, the eBay that you're referring to. So that was back in 2009, I believe a couple of guys named Rob Walker and, and Josh Glenn did this just fascinating experiment. They, they went out to, you know, flea markets and garage sales and they just bought a bunch of junk, right? I mean, things that nobody'd want, the kind of exactly the kind of things that you find at garage sales. And I, I think their average purchase price for these little trinkets was a dollar and 28 cents. I think they bought like a hundred things. So they spent $128 and some change. And then they decided to sell each of those hundred items on eBay. And normally you post something on eBay, there's a picture and a description. And that's, that's about it. And they, they put the picture of each of these items sold one at a time. And instead of a simple description, like, well, this is a uh, nutcracker, you know, or this is whatever they put a story and they, they had some people, I don't know if they paid them or had volunteers craft these stories, but they, and they were just totally fictional stories. And, and it was obvious that they were fictional. They were, you know, they didn't claim that these are real stories about these items to make them any more special than any other simple nutcracker or spoon or whatever. But these people just made up these interesting stories and, and no description, just a story. And they sold them. And the total sales price after they sold all hundred items was 3000 $600. And remember, they bought these for a total of $128. So the enormous return on investment for selling these items. And the only difference was one, it was sold on eBay. It wasn't sold at another garage sale. So that probably had something to do with the price being higher. But certainly much of it had to do with the fact that people just enjoyed the stories and they wanted to buy the item because it was associated with this interesting story. And so when I saw that happen for the first time in, in my life uh, was actually last summer. And this is the pig picture you're referring to. So literally a summer ago in May, my wife and I were at an art fair at Coney Island in Cincinnati. And she wanted to find a piece of art for our kid's bathroom at home. And we got to this booth of this, this underwater photographer, a guy named Chris Goog. And he just does these mesmerizing underwater photography pictures of sea anemones and coral reefs and stuff like that. And so she's flipping through his pictures and she just gets attached to this, this picture of a pig. It was literally of a pig swimming in the ocean. Okay. Which of course I just thought, well, that's the silliest thing. Pigs don't swim and they certainly don't live in the ocean. And, you know, so when I got my turn to ask a question of the, of the artist, I said, you know, dude, <laughs> what's, what's with the pig? How did you get this pig to swim so you could take this picture? And he said, oh yeah, it was the craziest thing. And by the way, that is the moment that the magic started. So he said, yeah, it's the craziest thing. That picture was taken off the coast of this uninhabited island in the Bahamas called Big Major K. And he said, apparently what happened was a few years ago, a local entrepreneur decided to raise a pig farm for bacon, I guess. And he found this uninhabited island where he could keep these pigs on for free. So he throws them out there. And he says, but if you look in the picture and he says, look really closely up there behind the pig, up behind the beach, what do you see? And I looked and I said, I really don't see much more than cactus. And he said, yeah. That's a problem, right? And pigs don't like cactus, right? So they weren't eating, they weren't thriving. He said, good news was a local restaurant owner on a neighboring island started boating his kitchen refuse over to Big Major K every night and dumping it a couple of dozen yards offshore. So pretty soon the first little hungry pig smells the food and the second one, and eventually they get brave enough to brave the waters and get out there and, and get to the food. And, you know, one thing leads to another and here it's two or three generations later and all the pigs on Big Major K 
can swim. And he said, it made it so easy for me to get this picture because I didn't even have to get out of the boat, right? These pigs have learned if a boat comes near them that they're going to get fed. So I just had to stick my camera out and this pig swam right up to my camera and I took this picture. So of course my credit card is already out at that point. I'm not like, well, we'll take it. Right. And the reason is because it was just a, such a compelling story that I get to tell to anybody that comes to my house. I get to tell it to you right now. I love telling the story. And it was just this animal psychology lesson and, and geography lesson and history lesson all rolled into one. And it, it just like that eBay experiment, that picture was no longer just a picture. It was a story that had a picture with it, not a picture that had a story with it. And it made it so much more valuable. It's a great story. I love that you opened the book with that. It hooked me right away. As it was supposed to, by the way. <laughs> yeah. One last question uh, on on the book. I want to ask you, what makes the story portable? What gives something, I'll just call it handles, something that somebody can mm-hmm. use and carry it and hand it off to the next person? And I'm thinking in sales situations, we tell a story and then we're not there when much of the selling is going on in a company. We're not there. Right. We, we've done our thing. We left. Yeah. But I have to equip people. <laughs> with something that they can go and make sure that they are able to tell the story in a meaningful and compelling way so that we can move things forward. Yeah. So yeah, and I, and that's one of the other 25 types of stories in the book, which, which I call arming your sponsor with a story, because as you said, a lot of times the the real decision maker is not going to be in the room with you and you've got to convince and, and equip your internal sponsor with the same selling tools that you came to him or her with. And if I could change your question a little bit, I would say it shouldn't be what makes a story have handles. It would be what makes a sales pitch have handles. And the thing that makes a sales pitch have handles is a story, right? Because unless you literally equip that sponsor with all of the slides to your presentation and all of the slick brochures and all, which you can, but they're not going to take it with you because they're not interested in being a sales rep for you. And those things are generally not interesting enough to them to bring with them because it would probably brand them as just a a shill for you anyway, which is not going to look good for them. But a story is something that they can easily take with them because, because it's memorable. The thing that gives part of your sales pitch handles is that it's memorable easy to repeat, is personal, is authentic, and this is really important, doesn't sound like they're repeating a sales pitch. They're just telling a story, right? And stories are so much easier to remember. Like if if I were to give you, here are the five or six reasons why storytelling works, then five minutes later, you and everybody listening to this would have forgotten my list of five things, right? But none of you are going to forget the story of Pig Island, Right. By this time tomorrow and a week from now and a month from now and even a year from now, you and anybody listening to this will be able to repeat the story of Pig Island and get most of the facts right. But none of you would remember a list of five things if I gave it to you right now because you just you wouldn't remember them. That's the handle that you're asking for is the story. That's the only part of the sales pitch that they're going to remember is the interesting story. And that's what they'll repeat in the boardroom when you're not there. So you need to pick a good story to be able to share during your sales pitch so that they'll have something with those handles on it to take with them. A couple questions outside of your book. When you think of great storytellers right now in any medium, whether it's movies or television, using the web, who do you think are really, really specifically great storytellers for someone who studies stories or wants to be a better storyteller to pay attention to? The first thing that comes to mind are Guinness beer ads. 
I can send you a few links if you want to share them with your audience. But first of all, the folks in Madison Avenue that make television commercials, I think, are, are masterful storytellers. And and of, of course, I could say just about any ho- great Hollywood movie or a great novelist. But those are two hour long stories. And that's just that's not helpful, I think, or instructive to business people or leaders or salespeople in crafting stories, because we have to craft two minute stories. Two to three minutes is the that's what I found is the average length of a sales story is two minutes. The average length of a leadership story is four minutes, right? The average length of a movie is two hours, right? So that's just not very helpful. But television ads, you know, are 30 to 60 seconds, sometimes 15, but they're, they're in the right ballpark for the length of time that you need to pattern your storytelling abilities after. And Guinness just happens to be one of my favorites. It's not that I love the beer necessarily, but their ads are just really, they have great stories in them. And I use them in my, my coaching and training all the time as examples of great storytelling. I've seen some of them. They're terrific. What about outside of the world of sales? Are there any storytellers you admire? Steve Jobs famously tells great stories or told great stories. I can tell you some of the ones that I appreciated, the people that I interviewed for for some of my books, John Pepper, CEO at Procter & Gamble. Sarah Matthew actually was former CEO and chairman of Dun & Bradstreet. And, you know, and most people wouldn't know these people as great storytellers or might not even recognize their, their names unless you're familiar with those companies. But, you know, as I interviewed leaders around the world at different companies, you know, I was just I was really surprised that some of them were incredibly gifted storytellers. And I'm quite certain that that helped them get to the roles that they got to. What are you reading right now? I'm reading some of your book right now. So that's one thing. So congratulations on, on your new book. Mark Hunter's new book. Hi. Profit Prospecting, I believe, right. is the title. And then I have some some books that I'm reading for fun. Homo Sapiens, which is a book about kind of the history of man of mankind and thought in mankind, just kind of on a personal level. It's a great book. Yeah. I'd like to interview the author for that one. That's really an interesting piece of work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should. If you do, I'll listen to it. <laughs> I'll let you know. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. And we'll send people out to pick the book up on Amazon. Oh, very good. Thank you so much for having me. That was Paul Smith, and you can find him at leadwithastory.com. We'll also put that in the show notes. The new book is titled Sell with a Story. You're going to want to pick that up at amazon.com. It's released on October 18th of 2016. I'm Anthony Anarino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. And if you like this show and you want more like them, do me a favor, go out to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. That's the best way to say thank you for this kind of content. And it helps me tremendously so I can keep helping you. That's all we have for this week. And I look forward to seeing you next week in the arena. There's no way we're getting out of this podcast without me pitching my new book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, being published by Portfolio on October 11th, 2016. Right now, I've done something that no one else has ever done. I've delivered a package of bulk buy bonuses for you that are actual value 
that have never been delivered before and that are going to help you transform your own personal results and the results of your team. And I want to take 30 seconds and tell you what is inside the book. Inside the book is two sections. One section is about mindset. So it's about behaviors and beliefs and attitudes. And the second half of the book is skills. And what this is essentially is a deficiency model. So any area where you might need to improve to succeed in sales is in this book. Maybe it's your discipline. Maybe it's your attitude. Maybe it's your resourcefulness. Maybe you need help closing. Maybe you need help prospecting or developing your business acumen. It's all in there. So right now, go to preorder.theonlysalesguide.com and you're going to be able to download a couple chapters. In one of those chapters, you're going to find the table of contents, which will describe to you all of the attributes and all of the skills you need to succeed in sales now. This book will make you better. This book will help you grow. This book will help you develop into a trusted advisor, a consultative salesperson, and somebody who wins new business. So go check it out, preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. Look for the bonuses and do send me a note and let me know how you like the book. Go pick up the book now. I promise you're going to love it and you're going to be transformed. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.